Those are deeply embedded skills that I think you carry with you really for the rest of your life. I, I, you know, I think I might have shared with you this before, you know, you can take the girl out of nursing, you can't take nursing out of the girl or the guy or however you self-define. Um, and I do believe that uh, to my core, that there is something about the process of professionalization associated with nursing that stays with you when you move into other contexts in a good way. How does being a nurse prepare you to transition into new horizons outside of nursing? Let's talk all about it with medical writer, educator, and podcaster Alexandra Housen right here on episode 455 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you and your personal and professional development, your career, and the healthcare system writ large. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, medicine, entrepreneurship, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride. And I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. As always, if you'd like to help other people find the show, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or also on Google, Amazon, or Spotify, or just share the show with anyone who you think might enjoy it or benefit from it. And you can share that from any app where you happen to be listening. You can also become a patron at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. I appreciate my small band of loyal patrons so very much. And I appreciate you for being here to listen and to share and to enjoy today's interview. The show notes will be at nursekeith.com in the drop down podcast menu, or also on the app where you're listening. And like I said, we are here with Alexandra Housen, and she is a medical writer, educator, podcaster, and longtime nurse. And Alex, it's so good to have you here. And my first question for you is related to what I asked at the very top of the show. So how do you feel in the big picture, how nursing prepares us to transition into other areas where we might feel drawn? Oh, that's such a great question, Keith. Um, I think, first of all, to clarify, you know, I, I left clinical practice um, many, I was going to say years, but truthfully, it's decades ago. You know, I trained in the 1980s. I worked um, in, up until the, the mid to late 1990s. Um, but And that's when I moved out of clinical nursing. I was a trauma OR nurse for many years. And, you know, of course, the operating room has its own professionalization parameters. You know, you train as a nurse. And then you train to work in that sort of specialized um, field where working as a member of the team is absolutely uh, you know, the most important thing that you have to learn, I think, because working in the OR, especially in trauma, it's a kind of a dance. You have to be able to anticipate the movements and thought processes of pretty much everyone in the room and also get out of the way quickly. Um, so you need to know where your body is in, in time and space. So that, that self-awareness of your role and your responsibilities, I think, is something that nursing teaches very well. You are working as a member of a team. You have an important job to do that complements and supports, enables the work that other people are doing in, in the team. Um, that that's, you know, that becomes very critical in a trauma OR situation. But I think that's part of a general learning that we all experience when we train um, as as nurses. And I trained, you know, in Scotland, not the US. Um, so a slightly different training system. And I trained at a time when training was not actually university based. It was hospital college based. And so we'd spend, you know, time in a clinical setting and then back to college and, you know, back and, and forward. So you're always applying almost immediately what you learned in college setting into clinical practice. So to answer your question, the first thing is how to 
contribute and behave as a member of a team. I think the second thing is self-awareness, you know, building a sense of uh, what you contribute, why it's important, and when you need to get out of the way is a skill that can prepare you uh, to move into many, many other professional settings and, and fields. And I would say the third thing is being able to anticipate what, you know, I think one of the things that you learn as a nurse is being able to anticipate what patients need, what your colleagues need, and what um, other members of the healthcare team need, be they physicians, you know, radiographers, uh, whatever. So having that you know, cultivating that anticipatory mode is something that can serve you well, I think, when you are thinking about moving into some other type of work and moving out of nursing. Hmm. And when you were working as a nurse, you said it was the mid-90s when you were starting to transition out of clinical practice. Did you move directly into entrepreneurship because I understand you also were in academia. So did were you doing academia at the same time as clinical? How did how did it all move for you? And how did you decide when, you know, to move to the next thing? How did how did the signs show you in your life that it was time? So I think you know, I'd been working in trauma OR for a few years and I, I wasn't burned out. Um, that's clearly a, a, a phrase that we've we've started to kind of overuse a little bit, but I was definitely a little bit frayed at the edges. You know, it's a high, um, high action, fast paced, pretty intense environment to, to work in uh, at pace. And so I was beginning to think about other things that I might want to do um, in in life. And I'm a lifelong learner, as I think many, many nurses are. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, I didn't train in a university system. And so one of the things that I felt was calling me was to take a deeper dive into, um, into learning. And so my first move was kind of, uh, you know, it was linear. I moved from clinical practice into academia. I did an undergraduate degree. I enjoyed that so much. I did a master's, I did a PhD at the University of Edinburgh and stayed in academia for another, you know, 10 years or so as an academic, teaching and doing research at the Universities of Edinburgh, the University of Aberdeen. And then we moved, I moved with my family to the U.S., um, my father actually it was from Ohio, and that's where I spent the first few years of my life. But that's not what you hear in this accent. Of course, you mm-hmm. hear you hear Scotland. And at the time that we moved, I was beginning to also feel a little bit um, unsettled in academia. In the nineties and early two thousands, in the United Kingdom the academic sector became very focused on funding acquisition. So people doing research, academics doing research had to start to really think about how to go after research funding. And, you know, that contributed to a very competitive environment. Um, And I wasn't sure if if that was something I wanted to kind of get into. But then we moved and I had no network. I had no academic network. Um, I had no LinkedIn profile. Actually, I'm not even sure. I mean, I've been a LinkedIn member since 2007. I'm not sure it was around in 2004. It, I'm not it sure either. Been. Yeah. Um, and and in retrospect, really had no desire to go back into academia. So I did look for some jobs. You know didn't uh, didn't get interviews never mind um uh you know get any any sort of job offers and at that point i really kind of took a step back to think about my skill set and at the time i summed up my skill set as writing research teaching and listening as i also trained as a qualitative researcher mm. uh, when i was an academic 
So I started to, uh, I stopped looking for jobs and started looking for work. And a lot of doors opened up at that point because I found that there were many, many people who needed help with writing research and um, not so much teaching, but being able to assemble content in a way that addressed the learning needs of adults. So that was a kind of, you know, the first transition was a pull. I would say the second transition was a push that forced me to think about what I wanted to do to earn an income, what I was able to do, and um, how I was going to, you know, implement that. Interesting. And you just said something that caught my ear. Speaking of listening, um, you said you stopped looking for jobs and you started looking for work. And I have a notion of what you mean by that. And some of our listeners might as well. But could you explain what that means to you? Yeah. So at the time, um, you know, I was I was scarring the Internet, of course, um, still kind of baby Internet. Um, but also classified ads and newspapers, um, you know, other sources, where, you know, Glassdoor, Indeed, all these places where employment is typically posted and, you know, cast a fairly wide net. I had no idea what type of jobs would actually require the kind of skills that, um, you know, I, I thought I had beyond, beyond academia. Um, I stopped looking for employment and started looking for organizations that might need support with, uh, you know, writing research uh, and so on. A little bit of editing in those early days as well, although I am not an editor. Mm -hmm. That is a very specialized skill set. Yeah, nor am I. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so I literally, I actually went door knocking. Um, I drew up a list of organizations in the area that we were working in, in public health, in the nonprofit world. Those, that's really where I kind of started that search for work rather than jobs and started making contact with people to um, tell them a little bit about what I did and what I could support them with. So that involved, you know, researching what they did, the types of um, deliverables that they put out into the world that they might need some writing and research support um, for. And so that type of work was usually short-term contract. Sometimes it was for a period of, you know, three to six months. Sometimes it was for a single project. Um, But the idea there is that there are no expectations on the contractor's um, side, on, on my side, that there's a job at the end of the process it's uh, you know project based or or time based. Mm-hmm. And how did you decide? You know, you mentioned you had skills like research, writing, um, teamwork, communication. So was that evident to you in that moment that okay, these are my transferable skills, and now I'm going to look for someone who's who needs these skills. Or did you also feel like you might have to accumulate some new skills? You know, how did you assess what you had and then what you might need in order to be more attractive as you moved out of the clinical space and also out of the academic space? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I know. I think that's really important. So I, I started with the trifecta of what I thought my skills were, writing, research, teaching, teaching and learning. And the writing and research piece um, where they were the sort of critical foundation, that's what got me in the door of any, you know, project, um, you know, and client-based work that I took on in those those early days. But at some point, around about 2000 and I want to say 2006, I found continuing medical education as a specialty area within the wider kind of umbrella of medical writing and realized that was going to be a really uh, sweet point for me because it would allow me to use all of the, to use those three skills. But I also realized I, there was a lot I didn't know about the field. I didn't know who the key stakeholders were. Um, I didn't know a lot about 
um, some of the formats and deliverables uh, associated with education in that world. So at that point, I realized I would have to do some additional training, which I did through the Medical Medical Writers, American Medical Writers Association, which offers uh, workshops and, and different types of, of training. I think to your point about skills from the the world of clinical work, you know, teamwork, self-awareness, um, those those are deeply embedded skills that I think you carry with you um, really for the rest of your life. I, I, you know, I think I might've shared with you this before, you know, you can take the girl out of nursing. You can't take nursing out of the girl or the okay. guy or however you self-define. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do believe that uh, to my core, that there is something about the process of professionalization associated with nursing um, that stays with you when you move into other contexts in a good way. Mm-hmm. Here's a question for you then along those lines. You were saying you can't take the nursing out of the girl. So many of us who go into nursing, it does become largely a part of our identity, our personal and professional identity. And that is, I think, the norm in United States especially, but I think it's the norm in a lot of other industrialized countries as well that, you know, our career and, you know, when you go to a party and you meet someone, what is the first thing you ask them? What do you do? I try never to ask that question, but that's the normal question to ask. What do you do? So based on that notion of identity, right? That like ingrained sense of like, I am a nurse, you know, and then that carries certain amount of cultural cachet, Mm -hmm. you know, being the most trusted profession, you know, blah, blah, blah. However, my question for you is when you decided to move in a new direction and strike out, you know, doing CME and doing freelance writing and leaving academia and leaving clinical practice, you know, both of those realms, Did you experience any cognitive dissonance around that notion of identity? Oh, 100%. You did? Okay. Tell me more about that. Absolutely. So I think that um, one of the things that happens to people, whether we're talking about nursing, whether we're talking about uh, medicine, pharmacy, academia, law, veterinary medicine, when you have your professional socialization as part of an established profession. It's very difficult and then move into some other kind of context. You lose the um you, you lose the, the collegiality of the people around you, which um bolsters that sense of identity, the jargon that we all speak in when we're a member of a profession, um, you know, those kind of conversations that are in, um, you know, you have to be, you have to know the jargon to be in the conversation. You lose your sense of um, place in the world, I think, uh, to some extent, because you can go to a party and say, I am a fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. And most of the professions that we're talking about here have a significant time investment in order to acquire all the trappings of that professional identity. So we're talking several years um, to to train as a nurse, to train as a doctor, uh, as a lawyer, and and so on. And so that sense of identity is kind of deeply, deeply ingrained. When I made that shift um, out of academia in particular, not so much when I moved from nursing to academia, because all my academic research is focused on um, healthcare, specifically women's health and women's experience of various um, preventive health policies and practices. Um, so I still had a kind of intimate tie to the world of healthcare, and I taught. Uh, courses on uh, sociology of health and illness, medical sociology, these kinds of things. But when I moved out of academia, um, I was also in a different country and had no network. And so there was nothing to kind of keep me connected to that previous uh, sense of identity. And I definitely felt adrift. I'd also moved into freelance work rather than employment. 
And in the freelance world, uh, as you know, you're really driving the bus. And so you have to wear mixing metaphors here. You have to wear all the hats Mm -hmm. and it takes a while to figure out which hats you need to wear and which hats you can gently leave in the closet and, (laughs) and forget about them or which hats you need to get somebody else to wear in order to support your, your freelance work or your freelance business. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely there was a sense of adriftness, a sense Mm. of, um, loss, you know, you, when you make that kind of transition, you are losing a part of yourself that you've worked very hard to cultivate. And so there is, um, a process of letting go and that can take some time. And I think it's important to recognize that, but one of the things I see in, you know, so now I, I train and support, um, people from professions who are trying to kind of break into specialized medical writing in the world of continuing medical education. So we are talking about nurses, physicians, pharmacists, vets. One of the things I see a lot is they step outside of of their profession and instantly, almost instantly feel they know nothing. You know, they're in this new environment. They don't have a supportive network around them they they're unsure of what they need to learn they're often still in the you know i i don't know what i don't know phase of learning um and one of the things i try to encourage people to do is to really um take inventory of their skills because everything you have learned in your prior professional uh, experience is something that you can carry with you into, you know, whatever's coming next. So yeah, there is a loss, but I do believe that we, we already have what we need to move forward. Um, and sometimes the thing that can help you do that is, um, you know, a mentor guidance, some Mm -hmm. kind of network. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one of the losses of that identity is, you know, when you go to that party and you meet someone and they ask what you do and you say you're a nurse, you know, people are like, oh, a nurse, you know, and they often will have a a nice anecdote about a nurse who took care of their uncle or, you know, or experience they had, or they just reflect on how wonderful nurses are, et cetera. And I think one of the benefits is that when you no longer say I'm a nurse, then people at that party are not going to ask you to look at the mole on their back. Right. So (laughs) (laughs) there are positives and negatives to everything. Um, But one last question before we take a break, when you were making these various transitions, clinical to academia, academia to medical writing and freelancing, et cetera, was there anyone out there, not in your head, but outside of your head who was being like, Alex, are you sure? Or what are you doing? Or, you know, were there questioning voices that you then had to grapple with? Yes. Yeah. Particularly when I moved from clinical work into academia, Hmm. some of the, there were two or three physicians in the OR unit that um, I worked in. And I worked in a regional trauma unit um, in in Scotland. So it was, you know, we received from all over Scotland, really. It's a small country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but one or two of the physicians were, two or three of the physicians were very, um, very skeptical um, that what I was doing, you know, was a sound, a sound move because they saw, you know, you're always going to get a job as a nurse. You already have a skill a set of skills? Why do you need to go to university? Why do you need to kind of do something else? Um, and, and definitely weren't very encouraging. Um, but on the whole, most people were, uh, you know, encouraging in the sense of, you know, it's good to try new things. And Mm -hmm. some people, particularly, uh, you know, uh, my, my teachers, uh, my mentors were, yeah, do that. And then use it for the good of nursing. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I did that quite in the way they they would have wished for. Um, but th- there was definitely a kind of mix. But there was some of that that kind of skepticism. But I think that, you know, the world has changed. I'm 
I'm 60. We're talking, you know, several decades ago. I think that we are all starting to realize more and more that life can be, you know, working life can be long. And it is unlikely that any of us are going to stay in one profession or one occupation for all of that working life. And so if there are opportunities that we can create or take to use each professional experience as a stepping stone to something else, then perhaps, you know, it's a version of working life. And I think people are starting to realize more and more that, um, you know, change is the constant mm -hmm. in terms of, of work. Mm -hmm. And when you make those transitions, you, and I've been through it myself, you have to grapple with your own internal struggles of identity, et cetera, et cetera, and fear. And then you fear, have to yeah. also deal with the outside voices and how they mix with your inner voice. And then you have to find your way. And that can be a challenge. And when we come back from the break, I want to talk about how you work with healthcare professionals who want to break into these spaces that you hang out in. And I want to talk about your podcast and some other things that are on my mind and might just crop up in the course of our conversation. So hang in there with us. We'll be right back with medical writer, educator, and podcaster Alexandra Halson right here on episode 455 of The Nurse Keith Show. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, Alexandra Housen. And Alex, prior to the break, we were talking about identity and what it's like to make those transitions and the inside voice and the outside voices that can affect how we perceive this thing we want to do. And also as we do it, you know, how does that shift our identity and how do the people around us respond when we're making those changes, especially family, friends, colleagues, mentors, oh, yeah. you know, there's all sorts of ways in which all of those various people and more will respond when you want to make a big change. Because when we change, it can sometimes challenge other people to think about their own lives and that can make certain people uncomfortable sometimes. So that's just what happens. So I wanted to ask you, um, what is the CME writing space like? How competitive is it? And how do you see it having grown up till now? And what do you foresee for it, you know, as we, as we move forward? Lots of questions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So um, continuing medical education and continuing education is probably one of the areas within medical writing in general that uses freelance writers most. There are, you know, medical writing is a huge uh, field. There's regulatory, there's uh, marketing, copywriting, there's patient education, consumer health, lots of different areas. And many of these areas um, are more likely to employ writers as staff writers than others. But CME is one of these areas where there are a lot of freelance uh, medical writers. Um, it's a little more, I like to think it's a little more creative than some other areas in the sense that you're working in teaching and learning. And so you're creating content that busy, frustrated, uh, increasingly harried health professionals need to support them in the work that they do to deliver patient care. Um, and, and so the formats uh, of that content are pretty varied. We can be talking about multiple choice questions, quizzes, um, patient cases, uh, text-based storytelling, um, online simulation cases, um, comic strips, podcasts, uh, video-based webinars. Um, there's a lot of scope, escape rooms, games. There's a lot of scope for 
the type of content that you might be working on as a writer. And part of that work involves, you know, listening closely and actively to what clients need so that you can, you can deliver uh, the, the, the project at the end of the, at the end of the day. Um, it also involves working as a member of a team. There are lots of people involved in creating education content for CME and CE, instructional designers, education strategists, um, the business developers who are really the salespeople, but they have the kind of intimate link to um, the supporters who are funding the uh, education. And funding itself can be a little complex. We can certainly talk about that if it's of interest. So there are many different types of deliverables. You're working as a member of a team. You're not having to kind of, you know, pull things out of thin air. There, there are briefs. There are scope. There, you always get a scope of work um, that you need to spend some time, you know, examining and making sure that you have all the information that you need at the beginning of a project uh, to, you know, to support. Uh, the work that you can deliver at the end of the day. It's a field that's changed a lot in the last 15 to 20 years. You know, it used to used to be very focused on meetings, live meetings. Um, it's shifted a lot into the online space, as has a lot of adult education. And of course, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic really accelerated that. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education tracks trends in, in CME and CE. And its last report showed that there's really been an explosion of online activities for physicians in particular, but that translates across for nurses and pharmacists mm -hmm. and other health professionals as well. So it is in transition. And I'm curious, mm -hmm. you know, I have to ask this because it's sort of the ubiquitous thing everyone talks about right now. Is AI having any impact on this particular area, this industry? There's a lot of discussion around AI and how it might have an impact. There's certainly mm -hmm. a lot of um, discussion in medical writing in general. On the CME side of things, I think where we're seeing AI make most impact is probably in three areas. The first is in the early stages of a project. So using AI as a collaborative partner to brainstorm ideas, generate outlines, um, create ideas for activities or learning objectives and these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. The second area where we're seeing um, the application, at least the, the experimentation with AI is in creating patient cases to support particular types of teaching points and, uh, you know, key, key messages. There are certainly some people within the CME space who are using AI for that, for that purpose, kind of testing it out, exploring. And then the third area where there's a lot of discussion around the potential for AI is in um, the analysis of outcomes data, qualitative outcomes data. So, you know, CME is a very outcomes oriented field that, you know, the field tracks data around, you know, things like participating participation and satisfaction, of course, but also learning outcomes. So mm -hmm. what is the knowledge, competence and performance outcomes that are associated with particular uh, education activities. Mm -hmm. And in that process of collecting data, you know, most of the time for most education providers, pre and post activity test questions form the bulk of their evaluation or their uh, outcomes assessment. But some collect qualitative data from open-ended uh, questions to to learners, and depending on the size of your learning community, that can generate you know maybe hundreds of comments, or maybe much much less than that. Mm -hmm. But if you do find yourself with a lot of um, responses to open ended questions, that's great. But then what do you do 
with that information. Mm -hmm. One of the things that some education providers are starting to do is explore using AI to kind of summarize and categorize those responses just to get an overview of what are some of the kind of key trends that people report when we ask them these open-ended questions. So those are the three kind of main points Mm -hmm. where people seem to be talking about, you know, exploring AI. I think that um, as in publishing, as in the grants process, the National Institutes of Health grants process and some other areas, CME probably will move to some type of, um, you know, ethical statement or um, ethical policy, you know, ethics policies and how to use AI, but we're not, we're not there yet. We're We're still feeling around the edges and, and trying to kind of figure out what's feasible. I think every industry, yeah, every industry is trying to figure out they're looking at they're kind of playing around the edges to figure out what this is all about um Mm -hmm. another tech area that i don't want to get into deeply right now but you you just mentioned it in passing a few minutes ago was gamification and escape rooms and things like that you know i think you know things like second life which i've used for Mm -hmm. some learning um opportunities over the years back when it first came out and for those of you who aren't familiar it's sort of this virtual world where some organizations will create environments where you can go with an avatar and actually like go to a classroom or go to some place and and learn and and it is part of the gamification aspect of of the world and i think there's a lot of potential there and you know virtual reality and mixed reality are still a thing and i think they're not going away and how those inter interact with ai will also be interesting in the next 10 20 30 years and long after you and i are dead so you know <laughs> a lot of different things will happen and you know as we wind down our conversation what i want to turn to now is how you help healthcare professionals who want to get into this this world you know i know people can go to your website you know it's alexhausen.com h o w s o n and they can check out what you have including your podcast which is um a wonderful podcast but tell us a little bit about how you support and help and coach and mentor healthcare professionals who think this is a really cool area they'd like to break into? So the main thing uh, I think I do, and thanks for that, Keith, is really kind of, you know, operate as a guide. It's a little different for health professionals because most will be exposed in one way or another to some type of continuing education because it's mandatory in most states. And, um, you know, nurses, physicians, pharmacists, and so on, you know, need to do some kind of continuing education as part of maintaining their license and uh, certification and and so on. Certainly, if you're an academic or a researcher, CME is really subterranean. It's not a world that's familiar at all. But I think if you are a health professional, at least you've been on the other side of CME and CE. You you kind of know what the deal is in terms of um, what the experience of participating in some of those education activities is like. And, you know, like everything else, some some good, some bad. But I think the tricky part is figuring out um, where to find the work where to find the freelance work, where to find the employment, because there is employment and being a writer is certainly not the only role that uh, health professionals um, are well equipped for in CME and CE. There are roles like medical director, clinical director, scientific director, education strategist, um, you know, kind of overseeing the, the, the whole kind of strategy in terms of developing uh, a curriculum and a series of education programs or activities. So it's a lot of different things that health professionals can do in in CME, but it's it's still a little subterranean even for for health professionals. You know, who, who are the key players? Um, what different types of education providers are there? And there are many. There are medical societies. There are hospital and health systems. There's there are federal CME providers. Medical education companies. Um, 
And they all have a slightly different approach to how they uh, develop uh, and implement, uh, you know, and deliver and measure education. There's also, um, it can be a little tricky to kind of figure out what the education process looks like. In the CME field, everything starts with a needs assessment. Um, and if you've worked in public health and some other areas, then you probably have a pretty clear idea of what a needs assessment could look like. And CME needs assessments are kind of like that, but also have their their quirky points. So, you know, I find that that um, health professionals who are moving into CME don't necessarily have a solid sense of what a needs assessment looks like because they're proprietary. And so you can't really find them. Examples on the internet, there are some, but you have to do a lot of, of digging. Um, so who's who? Uh, what categories of providers are there? How do they approach education planning? What is the needs assessment? What's its function? How does that fit in with the planning process on the pharmaceutical supporter side? And what do pharmaceutical supporters have to do with CME anyway? They do fund about 30% of uh, accredited continuing medical education and continuing education. But um, other providers like medical societies have, you know, they have a different funding model. So learning about those kinds of things can take a little bit of, of time. Um, and one of the things I try to support health professionals and, and other uh, uh, professionals who are you know, interested in moving into CME is give them a clear map of the field um, and, a, and uh, so they can navigate their way through it and find clients and project types that work for them and their skill set in terms of where they are now so that they can hit the ground running. Mm-hmm. And your podcast, Your Right Medicine, W-R-I-T-E. What is the purpose of the podcast? I know it's linked on your website. And what can people expect checking out your show, which is also part of the Health Podcast Network, like my show is as well? It is. Um, and I'm very happy about that. Um, right Medicine, is it's a weekly podcast and we explore best practices in creating content for health professionals. So, um, you know, episodes are structured around things like adult learning. What are adult learning principles? Why are they important? Um, what's the evidence uh, or the science to support uh, different approaches to adult learning? We look at healthcare trends that affect the type of, that, you know, influence the type of content that we create. Um, the purpose of the podcast is uh, at least twofold. One is to make visible the work that CME and CE professionals do to support health professionals than the work they do. And second, to provide resources for CME and CE professionals so that they um, can have access to some of the cool things that their colleagues are doing that they won't necessarily learn about if their colleagues aren't publishing in uh, trade publications or aren't presenting at conferences and and this sort of thing. So it's a it's kind of a it's a good way to bring to light the work that people um, you know the projects that people are working on in the field. Mm-hmm. And you have over eighty episodes, and there's a lot for people to listen to and to check out. And you have a number of different right. guests who. Um, who've come on the show to share their expertise. So it sounds like one of the first things someone can do who's interested in this particular world is maybe listen to your show and just take, put their foot in the, or even just one toe in the water just to see like, what's all this adult learning and CME about, right? Is that a good place to begin is just listening, watching, reading, and just finding out what the scope of this industry is. Is that a good place to start? I think scoping out what the field is. I do think that's a good place to start. I do also have a free uh, ebook um, that kind of maps out some of that territory for for anyone who's interested, and that's on my website uh, as well. Great. Okay. And again, that's alexhausen.com, A-L-E-X-H-O-W-S-O-N. And Alex, before we go... 
I have four questions I like to ask all of my guests. Are you willing to play with a little lightning round of four questions unrelated to anything we've already been talking about? I'm ready to play. Are you okay? So the first question has to do with success and how do you define it either personally or professionally? What does it mean to you? Uh, Success means calm to me. So when I'm not uh, paddling madly like a duck um, in order to sort of meet all my obligations, then I feel as though I'm in a successful place in my life. I don't like feeling uh, scattered or uh, being pulled in too many directions. So success for me is very much tied to uh, a sense of calm. Mm, That's nice. Yeah. And that can be personal or professional. I'm sure. Yeah, both. And they're, yeah. They, yeah. they're intertwined <laughs> they together. intimately, right? Okay. Yeah. Second question. Could you name or even just describe a person who's inspired you in the course of your life? They could be living or dead, could be a very famous person or someone none of us would ever have heard of before. Oh, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, uh, Leoma Cahill. She, uh, she, she's passed, but she inspired me because she, um, she divorced her husband, my grandfather, when she was, I don't know, in her 40s and then hit the road and drove from Ohio all the way across the U.S., stayed in Arizona for a while and then made it out to San Diego on the West Coast. She was uh, a woman of incredible independent spirit. Uh, she loved life and she liked to laugh and uh, poke around the edges of um, what's the way to put it? It's not that she, she, she wanted to, to make people who were a little buttoned up, just loosen a button at the top of their collar. Hmm. And so she, she, she kind of poked fun at people a little bit, but in a kind way. Hmm. Awesome. So you're not the first person to mention a grandmother. There's been many. Interesting. Mothers and grandmothers brought up and fathers too, but grandmothers figure a lot in people's lives. And I had a great aunt who figured very largely in mine. So I I understand that having a revered elder in your life, you know. And do you think that's a generational thing? I mean, we're we're kind of close in age. I'm wondering if there's something Mm -hmm. about, you know, that generation of could be, you know, yeah, people who came to age. I don't know, in the be. 20s? Yeah, in the 20s and maybe around, yeah. you know, World War World War II, you know, right. that is possible. Yeah, that was, yeah, those were defining moments in the 20th century. So could be, right. yeah, very well could be, yeah. All right, third question. Is there a book, I know you're a writer, so I'm sure there is. Is there a book or a movie? It doesn't have to be your absolute favorite because many of us can't even name what that would be. But something that, comes to mind that's had a major impact on the way you think, the way you live your life, the way you approach your work, the way you approach relationships, anything that just holds meaning for you? I'd have to say it's some like it hot. <laughs> oh yeah, tell me why. The ending where, uh, and I can't remember the actor's name, but he's driving the boat and uh, Jack Lemon is in the boat and they're, they're heading off to... Um, wherever they're they're heading off and the the person in the boat is um or, or Jack Lemon's trying to kind of resist being taken away he's still dressed as a woman um i'm sure this is all very you know inappropriate these days but he's still dressed as a woman and he's trying to kind of make it clear that he doesn't really want to be going with this person and eventually he says oh all right i'm a man and the person driving the boat says nobody's perfect <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and off they go into into the sunset. So I'm not sure if that's going to make much sense to listeners if they haven't watched the movie, but um, it makes me laugh every time I mm-hmm. watch the movie. I get a lot of pleasure of watching it with my younger daughter, who's in her 20s, and uh, it just seems to kind of capture an age in movie making. Yeah, 1959, um, Marilyn Monroe, Jack Lemmon, and Tony Curtis. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. That rings a faint childhood bell for me. So yeah, I I I hear that. So I'm always interested to hear what 
people remember and what moves them in the course of their lives. So I love asking that question. And now for the last question, which tells me a lot about people too, is if you were named queen of the world tomorrow, what would be one of the first things you would want to do to improve the lives of your subjects, bearing in mind that you would be queen of the world with absolute power and you could do anything. So this would just be your very first act as queen. What do you think? I'd abolish the monarchy. <laughs> wow. Say, just say something about that. Well, you know, I, I think, I think, you know, monarchies are not part of democratic society. They live outside democracies. And I believe uh, deeply in the power of democracy. I think uh, democracy in the US and in Europe is, uh, in, and in other parts of the world is, you know, under extreme threat at the moment in our, in our, you know, point in history. And so uh, I I would be very uncomfortable being queen and would want to kind of rip the carpet out from underneath my own feet. Wow. That is, that is a really origin, original response to that question. And I love that. Um, I love that. So you would want to put yourself out of a job basically. Yeah. Uh, 100%. And, and hopefully, you know, pull uh, democratic processes into the, into the picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's wonderful. Wow. I really like that. That's really thought provoking. So Alex, this has been really wonderful. I've enjoyed it so much. I'm so glad you and I have connected. I'm glad both of our shows are on the health podcast network and people can find your right medicine there and they can go to alexhausen.com and you know, all the links will be in the show notes too. And I encourage listeners to connect with you on LinkedIn as well, because your LinkedIn Please profile do. will be linked there. So thank you so much for being here. And thanks for being a great force for, you know, helping healthcare professionals find a new path in their lives. So thank you so much for all your great work. Thank you so much for the invitation, Keith. This has been delightful. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Remember, the show notes will be at nursekeith.com or on any app where you happen to be listening. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode, and I encourage you to take inspired action every day in the interest of your personal and professional satisfaction and development. And please check out alexhausen.com and Your Right Medicine the podcast. If you need personalized holistic career coaching, please consider nursekeith.com and nursekeith coaching. You can get a 10% discount on your first coaching package if you mention the Nurse Keith show. We are proud members of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com along with Your Right Medicine, and we are a jointly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by Amelia Earhart. The most difficult thing is the decision to act. The rest is merely tenacity. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios. Till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico and Alex Housen, my new friend and colleague saying arrivederci from Snoqualmie, Washington. All right. Thank you, Alex, so much. Thanks to everyone for listening. And we will, as always, catch you on the proverbial flip side.